0: All right, I'm going to start with something controversial this morning. I don't love to do it, but sometimes it can't be avoided, so I'm just going to jump in and just say, look, uh, dark roast coffee is just better, okay? It's better than light roast. Uh, I'm not taking other opinions. I'm not open to arguments. Uh, it's richer, bolder, deeper flavor, okay? It's, I want that roaster to take it right to the edge of burnt and then back off just a little bit. That's how I want. Now, okay, listen. Light roast, medium roast, it's okay, it's fine, it's serviceable. If you're just looking for a vehicle for caffeine to keep you awake in the morning, it will do, it will suffice. Um, But it's, you know, if you want good coffee, what you're looking for is a French roast, you know, an Italian roast, maybe an espresso roast. Better yet, put that in one of those little stovetop mocha pots. And drink it straight, just the way it comes out of the mocha pot—no cream, no sugar, none of that other nonsense. That, friends, is good coffee. All right, nothing to do with the sermon. I just public service announcement <laughs> that. No, I I bring it up because I want to illustrate how widely and generically we use the word. Maybe controversially, we use the word "good." Uh, there's maybe no word in the English language. Um, that gets thrown around quite so much. I mean, we use it certainly in reference to coffee, but also lawnmowers. We use it to describe our day, uh, what we think of a meal, uh, someone's performance in a play. Uh, In common English usage, there's nothing quite as safe and generic as good. And because of how we use that word today... Uh, When we then turn around and we we open up God's word and we read that God is good, you know, it it seems on the one hand obvious, well, of course, God is good. And on the other hand, it seems like that's not really saying very much at all, right? I mean, when we say that God is sovereign or omnipotent, we know we're making a claim that is bold, that reveals something powerful about who God is. But when we say that he's good, I mean, it's not wrong, obviously, but it feels tame, maybe. And maybe like it's not particularly revealing. But what I want to explore this morning together is not what we mean when we throw around the word good today, but rather, what does Scripture mean when it says that God is good? Good. Just to give you an example, in Mark 10, 17 to 18, a man runs up to Jesus and breathlessly falls to his knees. And he says, I imagine with some urgency, good teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in a response that I've always found a little bit cryptic, maybe even a little bit odd, Jesus first says to this very earnest man, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, whatever you make of Jesus' response here, it does tell us, I think, that Jesus is using the word good differently, more specifically, than we would today. So here's what I'd like to do this morning. Three things. It's going to be a lot of points. I'm going to try to keep it moving. But I'd like to do three basic things. First, I want to look at uh, what Scripture means when it says that God is good? What is Scripture saying when it makes that claim? Second, I want to explore where and how we see God's goodness. How is God's goodness revealed to us? And then third, I want to close by thinking about how should we respond to God's goodness? If God is good, what should be our response to that? All right, as I say, part of the challenge this morning is that unlike some of the other characteristics of God's nature we've been looking at, uh, good gets thrown around all the time. It's used very broadly. So I want to start out, uh, you can think of it as like whittling away. We're whittling away the meanings of good that we're not talking about, the ones that don't apply. So first, when Scripture says that God is good, it is not saying merely that God compares favorably to others. Uh, This is what we mean when we say, for example, that coffee is good or ice cream is good. We mean that compared with other kinds of coffee or other brands of ice cream, that this one that we have here, it it compares favorably. It's better. It's maybe even among the best. Uh, It's good, right? Uh, When scripture says that God is good, that's not what it's saying. It's saying something more than that, something a little bit different, Second, when scripture says God is good, it's not simply saying that God is functioning properly, you know, whatever that might mean. Uh, We use the word good this way all the time. Uh, This is what I mean if I tell you, for example, that my lawnmower is good. I don't mean that it compares favorably to other lawnmowers. Uh, To be honest, I have no idea if it does, and frankly, I, I really don't care. When I say my lawnmower is good, I mean like three things. I mean, it starts, it runs, and it shortens my grass, you know, on a pretty consistent way. That's all I ask from my lawnmower. If it does those things, I would say it's good, all right? It's functioning properly. Uh, this is what we get, we're getting after when we ask someone, for example, hey, is that battery good? Is that light bulb good? We mean, is it going to work the way that it's supposed to work? Again... When scripture says that God is good, that's not what it's saying. It's getting at something different and something a little more specific, a little bigger. Finally, when scripture refers to God's goodness, it is not simply a reference to his holiness or his moral uprightness. This is maybe the trickiest one here because God is holy. Uh, He is the standard and measure, maybe the source of all morality. There's some deep philosophical weeds around that particular issue. We'll save that for another sermon or maybe one of Paul's podcasts. Uh, God is holy. Uh, He is the standard of morality. But when scripture refers to his goodness, it's making a separate claim, a different claim. Now, I know this might feel a little tedious, like we're doing some theological hair splitting, and, and we are a little bit. But we need to do that every once in a while if we are going to allow Scripture to reshape our understanding of who God is. To to add clarity and detail to that picture. My theory is this. God made a point to tell us, yes, that he is holy and merciful and compassionate and present and powerful. But he also made a point, in addition to all that, to reveal to us that he is good And I think he must have had a reason for that. He he wants us to know him, yes, in his holiness and power, but he also wants us to know him in his goodness. So when scripture insists that God is good, when the psalmist says over and over, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, what does it mean? What is he saying? Well, when scripture says that God is good, it is claiming that in his disposition toward humanity, toward all that he has created, that God is benevolent and generous. Or, if it helps you, as it helps me to think of a contrast, uh, God is the opposite of cruel and harsh. I think about it this way when we say that God is good, what we're saying is that God delights in giving good gifts to others. He delights in blessing creation, humans included. Not in response to what we've done, not because God is hoping to provoke a particular response from us. After all, God is completely sufficient. He lacks nothing, he needs nothing. God pours out blessing because that's who he is. He is good. He is benevolent and generous. He is a God who in his very being delights and blessing others. Uh, there's a tale in Greek mythology about King Midas, a king who was famously wealthy and was famous for enjoying his wealth. You know, eat, drink, and be merry. That was his motto. Uh, and at one point uh, in, his, in his life, in his rule, King Midas came across a particular follower of Bacchus, the god of revelry and celebration, uh, who was sort of passed out in the middle of a public street uh, and Midas took pity on him. He brought him back to his palace. He allowed him to sort of convalesce there in comfort. And when Bacchus found out about this, uh, he appears to Midas and he says, "You know, I appreciate what you've done here for my follower. I'm I'm inclined to reward you. What would you like for a reward?" Now, as I say, Midas was already famously wealthy, but as he, as he searched deep within his own heart for what he really wanted, all he could come up with was, well, he'd like to be a little bit wealthier still. And Midas said, you got it. Or uh, Bacchus said, you've got it. Uh, everything you touch from now on turned to gold. Well, at first, Midas just was beside himself with glee, running around his palace, touching everything, you know, plates, uh, drapes, statues, and just laughing to himself as each item turned to solid gold. But over time, as the day went on, uh, this started to lose its appeal. First, when he sat down to eat and his food item by item turned to gold before he could even get it to his mouth. As the, this amphora of wine and the wine in it turned to solid gold before he could drink it. And then finally, he goes to lay down on his, on his bed, plush mattress, his favorite pillow, both turn rock hard gold the moment he touches them. And then as he sat weeping over this Curse that he at first thought to be a blessing, his beloved daughter comes in, and without thinking, he reaches to take her hand for comfort and then looks on horrified as she, too, turns to a statue of solid gold. Now, in the end, Bacchus does unwind this. He gets his daughter back. He loses this curse of turning everything to gold. But the point is that even in return for a favor, even in return for a good thing, Bacchus curses Midas, or at the very best, he toys with him. He has fun at Midas' expense. You know, if we've grown up in church our whole lives, if you've done that as I have, if you have grown up with the picture of God revealed in Scripture, or you've just imbibed that from the culture, from our sort of vaguely Judeo-Christian culture, You know, this claim that God is good might be one of the easiest for you to take for granted. I think it might be for me. We think, well, of course God is good. Of course he isn't cruel or petty. God wouldn't be cruel or petty. But we forget that in the time that Scripture was being given to the people of Israel, to the early members of the church, the exact opposite was taken for granted, The Greek and Roman gods, the Babylonian and Canaanite gods, were all of them cruel and harsh. Or at the very least, they had fun toying with the lives of humans. They used their suffering, their agony for entertainment. Man, if you live in that world, if that's what you take for granted... And then here in Scripture, you discover a God who is vastly different, who is the exact opposite. The God who called Abraham, the God revealed in Jesus, was very different. He is not cruel. He is not petty. He is generous. He is benevolent. In his disposition towards humanity, he longs to bless them and to give them good things, not bad. That's what scripture means when it says God is good. He's not cruel. He's not harsh. He delights in giving good things. All right, so that's our definition. That's what scripture is getting at when it says that God is good. The next question is, where do we see evidence of that? How is that goodness revealed to us? Well, first, God's goodness is displayed constantly in creation, both in the beauty and majesty of creation and in the fact that God sustains creation, including us. Uh, Look with me at Psalm 19, 1 through 6, or you can just listen as I read. The psalmist writes this, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge." They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out to all the earth, their, vo- their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and make it, makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Listen, we echo this psalm all the time, whether we know it or not, in our prayers, in the songs that we sing in our church today. Uh, and yet, Dave, what does David mean? What do we mean when we say these things? What does it mean uh, for the voice of the earth and sky to pour forth speech without words? What is it exactly that creation is declaring? Well, they declare. creation declares that God is powerful, surely, that he is the creator, But it also declares that God is good. Look, David, when he writes this psalm, he writes it because he sees the beauty of creation. And he knows that we did nothing to deserve it. We couldn't have. It was here before us. David sees the majesty of the night sky. And he doesn't even know what he's looking at. He doesn't know what the moon is. He doesn't know that those pinpricks of light are really giant Balls of burning gas. He can't possibly know the true size and majesty and power of the universe, but he knows this. He knows that what he is seeing is beautiful and breathtaking and that it didn't need to be that way. Creation is majestic, not by accident, not because we earned it, but because God is good. Because before humanity ever existed, God generously desired to pour out blessing, to give good gifts. That's just who he is. Uh, Herb Bloomquist, some of you might know him, he ran Shamanah for years and years. And what Herb loved to say about Shamana was this. He said, look, I believe, I believe that if I can get kids away from their screens, away from their regular schedules, away from the the busyness of everyday life, if I can just get them out into creation, out into this beautiful world that God has created, that they will have an encounter, an experience of the creator God. I believe if I can just get them out there, they will taste and see that the God who made this is good. Good. I think he's right. At the very least, he's got a lot of psalmists in his corner. Creation declares not just the glory and power of God, but also his goodness, because none of it had to be this way. Creation didn't need to be glorious and majestic. It didn't need to be joyous and enjoyable. But it is. Not by accident. Not because we earned it but because God is good. He is good. So we see God's goodness in creation. We also see his goodness revealed in scripture, which is to say, in the story of God's relationship to humanity, especially in salvation. And here too, I would say, man, we just see his goodness everywhere if we have eyes to see it. I mean, I always like to think of, in the Old Testament, when God first calls Abraham, we're told that he calls Abraham and his father out from the city where they lived and worshipped other gods. Abraham didn't go looking for God. God went looking for him because he is good. And more than that, God makes a covenant with him and with his descendants. I mean, before his descendants are born, before they were his people, before they had any possible chance to deserve it, God blessed them and chose them. He gave them his name. Not by accident, not because they earned it, but because God is good. And he just delights in giving good things to others. The zenith of God's goodness, of course, is revealed in the provision of salvation through the sacrificial death of his only son, Jesus. Uh, Listen as I read from Romans 5, 6 through 8, and I'd ask you, you've probably heard this before, but listen for Paul's astonishment. I mean, he's writing it, but you can tell, even as he writes it, that he's amazed at what he's writing. Listen to what he says to the church in Rome. Chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. He says, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, look, all right, on a rare occasion, someone will lay down their life for a righteous person. On a rare occasion, someone might die for a good person. But imagine the love of God. Imagine how vast his goodness, that while while we were his enemies, while we were in rebellion against God, at that moment but we were powerless, helpless. Christ died for us. I mean, if you want my opinion on the ultimate picture of what goodness is, what it looks like, I picture Jesus hanging on the cross in agony. I mean, literally in the process of suffering and dying. And in that moment, Jesus looks down on the people who drove the nails through his hands. He looks down on the people who cried out for his execution and then mocked him when it happened. And he intercedes for them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's goodness. I mean, talk about unprompted generosity, undeserved benevolence. That's it. Jesus didn't lay down his life because we deserved it or because anyone deserved it. The cross, yes, it was a display of God's love, of his forgiveness. But it was also the ultimate display of his goodness. It was the supreme act of a benevolent, and generous God. It's it is the ultimate embodiment of the psalmist's praise. I mean, I think it's amazing the psalmists can write, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his love endures forever. They didn't even know about the cross when they wrote that. But it certainly it can't be true of anything else more than it's true of that. There is no greater demonstration of God's enduring love or his goodness. All right, so now we know what we mean when we say God is good. We've looked at just a very few of the ways that God reveals his goodness to us. The final question I want to ask this morning is this. How should that truth shape the way that we think and live? I want to touch on three brief suggestions, and I promise I'll keep them brief, but I have three. First, Scripture makes it clear that the proper human response— when, we con- when we're confronted with the goodness of God, is simply to give thanks. Psalm 136 is a pian of praise to the goodness of God built around one of the common refrains of the Old Testament, one I've used several times this morning. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? Why would we give thanks? Because he is good. Because he is good and his love endures forever. God is generous and benevolent. He is compassionate to those who are suffering. He is patient with those of us that are stiff necked. And He is gracious toward the guilty. All of those are under the umbrella of God's goodness. It's how is goodness manifest to us? And what should we do? What can we do when we are confronted with that? But simply give thanks. Give thanks. Second, if God is generous and benevolent, then we ought to bring our needs and concerns before him frequently and without fear. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew eleven nine 9 through 11. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, Jesus is using hyperbolic language here to make a point. Look, all of us, I hate to break it to you, you included, me certainly, all of us at best still we have moments of cruelty and harshness none of us are good to everyone all the time and if even we with our deep flaws know how to give good gifts good things to the people that we love how much more will god who is fully good to everyone all the time how much more will god give good things to those who ask him again you should think of the contrast between our god and the god of the greek myths who in return for a good deed gave a curse jesus is saying that's not who our god is if you ask for bread he's not going to give you a stone our god is good he delights to give good things to those who ask him and the point I think quite clearly, is that we would be foolish not to ask. We should bring our concerns, our needs, our troubles, we should bring the desires of our heart before our good God, and we should do it frequently and without fear. Finally, third, if God is good, we as his children, as the bearers of his image, should reflect that goodness to others. For two reasons. One, he created us to be his image bearers. And if he is good, then it's his goodness we should be imaging to others. And second, because Jesus explicitly calls his followers to this. Listen to what he says in Matthew five forty-four to 46. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. After all, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? This right here, friends, we should recognize right away, is a call to goodness in exactly the way that we've defined it today. Jesus calls those who would follow him to love and pray for those. Yes, love and pray for those who love you. But love and pray even for your enemies. Even for those who would persecute you. Because then you will be like your Father in heaven. Your good God in heaven who sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is good even to his enemies. Jesus interceded even for those who were executing him. And he calls us to do the same. Because when we do it, we inch a little closer toward fulfilling that purpose for which we were created, to be his little images in creation. And, of course, we're obeying our Lord and Savior. Uh, When I was in fourth grade, anyone here in fourth grade, by the way, Fifth grade, third grade, right around there. Yeah, some of you are, are exaggerating, but yeah, okay. I see we've got some hands here. Um, when I was in fourth grade, my family moved houses and switched school systems. Before Christmas break, I was in the school I had been in since kindergarten, uh, where all my friends were, and after Christmas break, I returned to school at a school where I knew basically no one. Uh, I didn't know the teachers, didn't know the kids, I didn't know how it worked, I mean, you know, you're in fourth grade, you don't know, maybe this other school's crazy and totally different. Uh, and I remember, I mean, it's crazy to me, to th- I was thinking about this this morning, that's like 30 years ago, I mean, more or less for me. And I, I, if I think about it, I can recall the, the, the cold sweat anxiety, the, the stomach-tightening fear of getting on this bus to go to a building I'd never been to before, where I didn't know people, I didn't have friends. Uh, the morning, and I'll just say, the morning, I don't really remember, so it must have gone fine. What I remember very clearly was the anxiety of going out to recess, all right? If you're an adult like me, maybe this, you got you to think back a little bit. Uh, class, you know, whatever, you're not really supposed to be talking anyway, so it wasn't a big deal. Lunch, you can at least, you're eating, you're busy. But recess, I remember just being panicked, like, what am I going to do? Will anyone... Play with me? What do they even do at this school? Do they play basketball? Do they play soccer? Will anyone include me? Will they laugh at me, reject me? Am I just gonna wander around by myself every day at recess for the rest of my life? Right? And so I, you know, as I was sitting there worrying, thinking about it, I was like, I just I have to make a plan. I know there's basketball hoops, I'll just go to the basketball hoops and we'll just we'll see what happens. I'll be included, I'll be rejected. That's where my fate will be decided. So I went to the basketball court, full of anxiety, and just as probably has been done since the beginning of time, we all lined up in a line, and two boys stood there uh, and took turns, we're going to take turns picking teams. And I, I was trying to prepare myself, like, okay, I'm going to get picked last, no one knows me. For all they know, I don't even know that this is basketball, you know, they, they don't know. So I'm just trying to prepare myself for that, you know, particular embarrassment, uh, the first guy picks this, get to the second kid, Nathan Gailey. And uh, he and I made eye contact. And I, I remember very specifically being excited and terrified. I didn't know yet, was this good? Was, this, was he going to pick me or was he going to call me out and humiliate me? I don't know. Uh, but instead he said, hey, what's your name? I, are you new to our school? And I said, yeah, I'm Jay. This is my first day. And he said, oh, that's awesome. You're on my team, Jay. And uh, from that moment on, he was nice to me during the game. He became my buddy during the rest of the school day. His friends became my friends. It was an act of goodness. I didn't earn it. Uh, For all he knew, I I was going to be worthless at basketball, and he was going to really regret picking me. He couldn't possibly know that there would be any return value for him. He just did it because he was good. It was a moment of goodness, of undeserved benevolence and generosity. And I mean, it was huge to me. I mean, I I, mean, I remember almost nothing from fourth grade, but I remember that. I remember that. So I just want to say this morning, man, when we heed Jesus' call to goodness, to unprompted benevolence and generosity towards others, we just become a little bit more like what God created us to be, little images of him. And man, kids, if you're in elementary school, I mean here, I'm old now to you especially, almost 40. I remember that. That was, a, that was a pivotal moment in my life, a formational moment where I witnessed and understood the power of goodness. You can do that. You start school this week, maybe you've already started. Man, if you see that kid who's new to your school, looking around with big scared eyes, show them some goodness. Man, teens, I know you get tired, probably get tired of hearing me say this. There's probably no period of life where goodness has the ability to be more powerful, more transformational than teenage years. Like You want to do something that is going to reveal God to people in a way that is the potential to be transformational? Show someone some goodness. Some unprompted benevolence and generosity. When we do that, we become the image bearers we we were created to be. We become signposts, living testimonies to a world who desperately needs to see God and to know that He is good. Will you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you and God we do. We just want to start by giving thanks this morning. You are a good God. You do delight in giving good gifts. We know that not just from creation, not just from your word, but we can testify to that because of what you have done for us in our lives. Father, I pray that in response to your goodness, that we might be good to others that we might reflect the goodness of our Heavenly Father into the world, and that we might be signposts, living testimonies, who point out that the God who created our friends, our family, the God who created everything, that he loves us, and that he is good. In your name we pray. Amen.